Welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast, presented to you from Cape Town here in the Western Cape, South Africa. The podcast is presented with a view to providing a platform and voice for built environment professionals and interest groups who are working towards transforming the places and spaces here in South Africa. It's dedicated to the individuals and community groups who are supporting both the formal and informal processes that are shaping our cities and our spaces. Welcome to another episode of the Talking Transformation podcast, and this time, another book review. A new publication has tackled the complexities, the processes and the policies around density. The book, Densifying the City, Global Cases and Johannesburg, draws on experience and inputs from a host of leading academics and practitioners, and considers some 25 inputs from some of South Africa's leading academic minds. Identifying the city does what it says on the cover. It takes the reader on a series of case studies as diverse as Istanbul in Turkey, Sydney in Australia, Beijing in China, and the poster child for transit-orientated development, Curitiba in Brazil. There's a lot to digest, density in both its informal and formal forms, and the evolution of policy and urban management approaches are all considered within the book. Closer to home and through Johannesburg as the primary case study, the book considers the forms in which density takes via different spaces, different processes, different participants. The ambition and realization of density through transit-orientated development, or TOD, adds a third dimension to our conversation. We consider the issue of Johannesburg's corridors of freedom, and observant listeners would know that this was the second Talking Transformation podcast theme that we looked at way back in July and August 2019. This conversation gives us an opportunity to update the perspectives and thoughts on this issue through an academic lens. I'm delighted to welcome the editorial team for the book on this episode. The voices of Margot Rubin and our very first guest on the Talking Transformation podcast way back in 2019, Philip Harrison, are two voices familiar to those of you who followed the podcast's fortunes. The voices of Alison Toads and Alexandra Applebaum would be new to all of you as first-time guests on the podcast. It promises to be a rich conversation with colleagues, the pinnacle of their game. We hope you enjoy the episode, and as always, encourage your feedback through our social media platforms, including Twitter. You can find us at Talking Transfo, the number one, or leave us a voice message on our voice message service on the Anchor podcast platform. Enjoy the episode. So it's just gone half past seven on Wednesday, March the 3rd, and I'm absolutely delighted to have the editorial team of the newly released book, Densifying the City, Global Cases and Johannesburg. We've got Phil Harrison, Margot Rubin, Alison Toads, and Ali Applebaum. How are you all keeping this evening? Margot, how's, let's start with you. How have you been keeping? Thank you, Peter, and yourself. All good this side. Thanks, Margot. Really good to have you back on the podcast for the second time. Phil, your way, everything good up north? Well, Peter, and great to be with you this evening. Of course, the very first voice that we ever heard on the podcast. Lovely to have you back, Phil. Really great. Alison Toads, uh, Alison, first time on the podcast. An absolute pleasure and privilege to have you in this space. How have you been keeping over the last few months? All well, your side, I hope. Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks. And great to be here. Thank you. We've got Ali Applebaum. Ali, welcome on the podcast. Nice to have you with us, a new voice. And uh, you, you're working, bouncing between different time zones this evening. I am. I'm teaching in California, but living in Johannesburg, which has its challenges. But um, I'm really pleased to be with you tonight. Well, you're very welcome here. And thank you very much for making time before your class starts. 
How did the book come about? What led to this particular project? Density, clearly a very important issue we've been dealing with during the pandemic and so forth. Uh, material to work with both on a global and a local scale. So yeah, tell us a bit about the introduction to the book and what readers would be able to expect if they were to buy the book and engage with it. The book came out in November last year, 2020. I wish we'd known at the time that COVID was coming, but we did not. We can't really claim we did, but we did know that densification was an important topic then and even more so now. So this book we've worked on for three or four years. It came together as a result of a bunch of different projects we were working on at WITS on urban resilience, on densification, and on transit-oriented development. And all of these were focused on Joburg, but they had a global comparative aspect to them. And that's obviously really important in the book. So in December 2017, we had a workshop at WITS with colleagues from the BRICS Plus City Lab, which Phil has been involved in running, and others who had responded to our open call for abstracts for work on, on densification in Johannesburg. And that was really the start of this project. From the beginning, the editors and contributors all shared an interest in the kind of empirical realities of densification. So the debate around densification was at the time and still is very normative and very polarized. And we set about to bring together a book that looked beyond this normative theory. And instead of arguing, which a lot of literature does, that densification is good or bad, uh, we really wanted to look at the complex, varied, spatial and socioeconomic realities of densification. So the chapters look at the policies and processes of, processes of densification, which have manifested often in very unanticipated or contradictory or contrary ways. They highlight the roles of numerous actors, policy actors, private developers, government officials, and I think most importantly of residents and their role in densifying or de-densifying cities. To me, I think the guiding question of the book is not, as is the case in most literature, should we densify or de-densify cities, but it's really how does densification unfold? And to answer the question on the cases, so as I said, the global conversation with Johannesburg has been really important to us. And the main case, of course, is this extended case study of, of Johannesburg, which is a city we all have studied um, in various ways and we think has some really important insights to offer in debates about densification, even though it's often not cited in densification literature, but we'll get to that later. But because we didn't just want to produce an edited volume on Johannesburg, uh, we decided we would place the city in conversation with others across the world. So in the end, we included chapters on eight cities, excluding Joburg, uh, mostly in the global south and many in BRICS countries. So we look at Sao Paulo, Curitiba, Istanbul, Delhi, Beijing, Sydney, Nairobi, and Maputo. Our logic wasn't to try have a representative spectrum of every case, you know, of, of all the different possible variations of densification. But instead, the cases really had something interesting and significant to say about density in their own right. And then also they had something that could something to say in, in conversation with Johannesburg. And some cases like Curitiba are renowned in the density literature um, and everyone speaks about them. And then other cases like Maputo, we seldom consider when we're talking about the politics or practices of densification. We're really hoping that these eight cases together, of course, with the long, the in-depth study of Joburg, help to add nuance and depth to conversations about densification going forward and move us perhaps in some ways beyond this this polarized we should or shouldn't debate. 
In a debate, it remains, Ali. We've seen initiatives to reduce density, particularly within our informal settlements, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that during the course of the conversation. But at the same time, the idea of trying to intensify what are typically very low-density suburban areas of our our major metropolitan areas. So how do we start to understand that contradiction uh, in urban policy and the mixed messaging that's often town planners and so forth are accused of, of saying, oh, but you can't have it both ways. In answering that, can we talk about the relationship between quality of life and the indent and density in the examples you've looked at? Let me start by saying that in terms of policy, in fact, there has been this broad trajectory away from sort of an earlier repudiation of, of density towards an embrace of density, not, not complete embrace, and there certainly are complexities. But broadly speaking, a consensus has emerged around the virtues of urban compaction, supporting more vibrant economies, greater social mix, um, greater, more sustainable lifestyles. Um, and that's clear in the new urban agenda and the work of World Bank, OECD, UN Habitat, planning policies across the scales of government in South Africa. But in practice, there is, as you said, there's a lot more complexity because uh, politicians, Decision makers are not only responding to these technical proposals of, of planners, they they also, in fact, um, responding to an interplay of interests, to public pressures, and these are really diverse. So we have to understand the politics of density. There's so many interests at stake in, in and, and so many motivations underlying these protests, processes. And, and so the rationale for or against densification often obscures these other interests. And, and there are also these, these many different cultural and personal preferences in relation to density. That's very evident from our, uh, from our case studies. There's that whole experiential dimension and, and great disparity across space in the tolerance for high density living. So the discussion in Hong Kong is very different from Johannesburg. And so because of these multiple pressures, the actual practice of, of density uh, really does differ from what may seem to be a dominant policy discourse, and contradictions do become apparent. You've mentioned informal settlements, and, and that's really clear. I could also mention this trend in many parts of the world towards new city development. So creating a new seems to abandon the existing already dense urban fabric with its problems and its vitality, a la Jane Jacobs. You know, with these new cities, the images projected also suggest density, high-rise apartment blocks, glitzy apartment blocks surrounded by these perfect parks and happy pedestrians. Um, so, so maybe that's the point, that it's not always about density per se, but about uh, the aesthetics of density, about the type of de- density, about what's perceived as good density and bad density. And new cities offer this apparent counterpoint to bad density with its informality, its slums and its social problems. But the problem is that the image isn't the reality, as we know, and and that the so-called bad density, the bad density of informal settlements you're talking about often plays such a critical social function in providing a large proportion of our population with with access. So, and and then finally, the relationship uh, between living standards and density can never be direct whether positive or negative, because it's mediated by so many different factors. So urban form is so critical. You can have high density, but high density on the urban edge, far from from places of employment, that doesn't really help. You can have high density with really 
good supported by really good infrastructure and facilities and that will work that you're going to have high density without that supportive facility and and infrastructure and the consequence can be misery in everyday life so it's a really complex relationship peter when you talk about bad densities, I'm thinking about things like, you know, the ability to render services, to get into if there's a fire or a, an emergency into these areas in informal settlements. In the same way that I think of overcrowding of certain uh, buildings in Central Business District of Johannesburg. Again, we, we, I think we will talk about some of these examples. But you know, just to just to expand a bit on this idea of bad density and what do we what what what, what do we imagine and what are the challenges in terms of urban management, in terms of service delivery, when we talk about you know, excessive density in, in these urban spaces? So, so when I'm talking about bad and, and good density, there's a bit of irony in the, in, the way we, in the way we use the terms. So the existing city, at least to those who are promoting the idea of building a new, is seen as, as an example of bad density. It's, it's dense, but it's associated with overcrowding. And what they offer is good density, which is this new sort of glitzy, a new city development, but it's not to romanticize existing urban areas. It's not to say there aren't serious problems in informal settlements, for example, and, and that the Western Cape approach of reblocking, for example, is, isn't a good approach and wouldn't really help in making density work far better um, for the residents. You, you have to look contextually. You can't make blanket statements about the virtues of density. In some cases, density really works to make environments uh, more vibrant, to make economies more vibrant, and, and density could be more inclusive by bringing more people into the urban mainstream and closer to jobs. In other cases, um, clearly density equates with overcrowding and might be dysfunctional and needs to be far better managed or needs to be reorganized. The space needs to be reorganized. So as, as Ali said, we're not trying to be normative, but we are trying to say there are no blanket prescriptions. You really need to drill down to, to, to the meaning of density in each context. And, and sorry, just to add into what Phil's saying on, on this whole situation is, you know, this idea of good densities and bad densities also became really apparent during the latest, of course, the, the latest pandemic, you know, where Florida talks about the fact that we've got, we've had good dense spaces and bad dense spaces. And he says, you know, in, in, good dense spaces, people are able to shelter within their homes, they're able to work from home, they're, they live in single household units, um, they're able to get things delivered to them, they're able to rely on their facilities, their services, they're able to really hunker down in these good dense spaces and to be able to, to, to ride out the pandemic. The, you know, the converse is, is, is true as well. The people who are living in bad end spaces are people who are in multi-generational uh, households. They have too, too many, in inverted commas, um, people within the actual household units themselves. They can't rely on services. They're frontline workers. They don't have access to the services. And as a consequence, these are the people who are made most vulnerable and who are most exposed to disease and and to the and, and we suspect to pandemic. And we've seen some of this within places like New York and London and various other cities where you've had geographical differentiations, not by density, but by different kinds of density. And as a consequence, different infection rates. The relationship between density and, and the pandemic has been has been a really interesting one because it hasn't been a straight line relationship. It hasn't been, oh, well, more dense places have had have had greater infection rates or greater higher rates of death. It's been about which which areas have had different kinds of density within them, which have had the different kinds of infection rates. 
Yet, I mean, it was a big issue. If, if we remember back to those first months of lockdown, National Department of Human Settlements very much intent on de-densifying, you know, many informal settlements across the country. And I think I come back to this thing of, you know, most informal settlements require a degree of de-densification. So was it one, a, a rebranding of an acceleration of the program? Or be that, you know, it's this is something new and we need to do it tomorrow. And I, I didn't quite understand in, in, in my own mind. And I'd be interested to get your, your take on that in terms of the, the speed in relation to informal settlement upgrading during the pandemic. Is that something that you think was benefited? Have our upgrading initiatives benefited during this period? Or in fact, has it set us back on, 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 on the back foot? You know, it's, it's it's a difficult question to answer because the, the more cynical reading kind of of, of the informal settlement de-densification in relationship to the pandemic is that it was very much clever in that um, the Department of Human Settlements has been looking for a way to just to remove people, to de-densify these, these settlements for a very long time. And in a way, the pandemic offered the most perfect opportunity. The, the state kind of took it and said, okay, great, here we've got an excuse, here we've got seems to be a really justifiable and legitimate reason to de-densify people in ways that are not actually procedurally correct or whatever, but we've got this, this crisis and so we can do it. And so a, a very cynical reading would be to say, you this was this was just cover. This was just a way of achieving an agenda that had had been in the wings and had been the, the state had been trying to undertake for quite a long time. However, having said that, I mean, there was, of course, a rational concern about the pandemic within informal settlements and within more crowded spaces. But the counter argument to that is, well, instead of de-densifying, then, you know, what should have been put in place was the access to services and better access to water and to, to sanitation and to whatever else, rather than the displacement of a whole bunch of people to, you know, what, what people worry about might have been temporary accommodation, which didn't have the facilities, didn't have the social networks, which people need, particularly in times of crisis. You know, the argument goes back and forth about uh, what what was actually driving or motivating then kind of informal settlement de-densification agenda around the you know in, in kind of March, April last year. What is interesting about it as well is is that after there were so many objections from social movements, communities, civil you know, kind of socioeconomic rights organizations and so on and so forth, that the state did listen and, and they reevaluated the de-densification stuff. So there was definitely a, a really good um, response and, and a very, to my mind, very, very democratic response to what was a a very difficult decision, which, whichever way you look at it. So I think that that's that's quite interesting as well. If we bring it closer to home, and the Johannesburg is your principal case study, how did Johannesburg speak to or contribute to the the global context that you've put into the book as the first part of sort of a three part journey? Conversely, what what do you think the insights? from the global case studies can come into that space from Johannesburg and inform the, the thinking around policy and implementation space in Johannesburg. Alison, any thoughts from your side in terms of case studies and how transferable they were within the Joburg and global context? There's this quite new or recent literature on densification and densities that is really complexifying definitions and understanding and that's incredibly useful in thinking about, certainly in thinking about policy, but also understanding processes. Just to take something simple from that international literature and a case like Curitiba, which 
has been so widely fated. But actually, when you get down to looking at it, there's this big uh, disjuncture between population densities and built densities. It might be dense in terms of what they were trying to do in terms of the development of these high-rise units along the, the main routes. But actually, it's mostly the middle classes and upper-income groups that live there. It's not the poor who actually live still live pretty far away. Um, they're not necessarily using public transport. They've also got cars, and actually the car ownership rates are pretty high. I think apparently about as much as Los Angeles. So what, what some of that literature really helps with and some of the international case studies help with is to really unpack the complexity of ideas about density. I mean, another dimension that comes through quite a lot from that international literature that we hardly talk about in the South African context is about property markets, land values, and exclusion, and how and how that impacts on density. So, as you know, in Cape Town, you you're not going to get low income, high high density stuff, or housing, or even access to affordable housing even in the new way it's being done with very tiny units in the inner city because land values are just too high. And you see those dimensions in the international literature quite a lot and a lot of the contradictions on it. So I think there's a lot of really rich work that's coming from that international literature that's incredibly helpful in forcing one to move away from these assumptions about what can be achieved through policies of compaction and so on. Looking at what uh, what Johannesburg brings to the international literature is very much this idea of informality and how that shapes density. Because I think, you know, there, there's also literature that talks about how cities are actually sprawling, they're de-densifying, and actually densification isn't really happening very much. And in a way, Joburg is, a, is quite a different case. It's certainly doing that, but it's also densifying at the same time and in certain spaces. And a lot of that is really driven by informal processes. So I think partly what Joburg is bringing to that international literature and that international debate is the way in which informality shapes densification and the very different kinds of informality that emerge. So, so you'd get densities in somewhere like Yeovil that's within houses, that's occupation density, it takes different forms in other parts of the inner city. Alexandra has different kinds of density as well. The backyard shacking is another form of it. So I think it really starts to explode the idea of density and starts to push that into the debate to, to quite a large extent. One thing to add, I think what Johannesburg gave us in, in these case studies was when, well, at least from my perspective, when I started reading all the chapters, it became really clear that the actors that we commonly attribute to, you know, densification to the state, uh, private developers, et cetera, are not necessarily the actors that are, are kind of primarily driving densification. So in Johannesburg, it became very clear that what we termed informal processes, and there are very many within that from backyarding to, you know, subdivision of inner city apartments to building shacks. I mean, there's a whole very wide range of, of informal processes, but what became quite clear to me was that it's residents who are really driving densification. And they're an actor that I think often isn't considered in the policy uh, literature in particular. 
residents aren't doing this in response to the city planning for Johannesburg to become dense. Their residents are doing this because they want to live in specific areas for whatever reason, because it's convenient. Or So I think that w- was a really interesting part, point that came out of Johannesburg. And, and you can see it in other cases too. It's not to say that this is a, a, unique to Johannesburg. I actually think it's probably in every city that is densifying. It just really focused us, I think, on this on on residents as actors of densification, um, and can be seen in lots of different cities. Phil, one of the case studies that is looked at in the book is China's Beijing, and what's interesting about it is it has sort of two sides to it. It talks about actually in some parts of Beijing within the urban core, there's actually been a depopulation, even though on the urban fringe of many of the cities in China, there's been a sort of unprecedented growth and massive, uh, almost sprawl of new cities and the like. What is the the lessons for us here in South Africa in terms of this idea of new city growth, density and urban form that is needed here in South Africa? What is it we should be thinking about? And what were the, some of the take-home points from the chapter? I mean, this is indeed a country that's accommodated an additional 530 million people, which is not a small number. Within a generation, within 35 years, accommodated this number in cities over a generation. And and so it is an important country to look at because of its scale, because many of the processes that happen elsewhere are revealed in extremists in China. But I think also because of its demonstration effect, that because of the significance of China, there's been a stream of study tours from South Africa to China, to Beijing, to Shanghai and other cities of politicians, officials looking for answers from a country that's experienced this rapid, often very impressive transformation. But at the same time, we have to be careful. We have to interrogate what we learn from China because it's a very different context. And and we have to be careful about simply translating practices from one context to another. Um, And we have to understand how contextual many of these processes are. We have to understand the achievements, and they undoubtedly are, and the flaws of China's urbanization processes. So, for example, we can go to China. We can see many newly constructed cities, many of them very glitzy, very impressive. And we can come back to South Africa with a new city model in mind. But we can forget our own context. We can forget that um, our urban growth over the next 30, 40, 50 years can be accommodated largely within our existing urban fabric through intensification, densification. You can't do that with an additional 530 million people. That does require new cities. So we have to be careful about the transfer of ideas. In in terms of, of the patterns of change, Certainly, China's land and and municipal financing regime supports the rapid expansion, the sprawl of urban areas. So the urban population has expanded about four times over the reform era, but the urban footprint has expanded more than six times. And that's simply because municipal finances are highly reliant on the income that comes from leasing out state-owned land. To get more income, you must lease out more land And this drives continual expansion. Like South Africa, planners talk about densification and compaction. But like South Africa, there are powerful forces working against densification. They're different forces in the the context of China. But it still produces the, the contradiction. So that's what we can learn, not about the specifics, but about the fact that there are processes that countervail each other. 
It's interesting in the, in the urban centers. So you do see these new high-rise buildings in the urban centers, but the occupancy of these buildings is often far less than the occupancy of the buildings they replace. In the case of Beijing, if you've been to Beijing, you remember these traditional quarters, these hutongs, where many families live surrounding small courtyards. Yes, the built form, the densities are increasing, but the occupancy is reducing. So again, the lesson from China is about the complexity of densification. It requires us to look at the specifics. It requires us to look at the context. Do we want to follow China's example? In some respects, yeah, indeed, infrastructure-led development, efficiencies of development, tension to implementation. Other respects, no, only very carefully so. And maybe something to avoid is this broad pattern of urban expansion. I think the China example really emphasizes what, what I was saying at the beginning about what this book's trying to do, which is really understand how densification happens and how and how it happens, not, not in theory, but the, the kind of underground realities of it. And there's be, there's so much policy transfer and like transfer of different models from new cities to bus rapid transit. And there's obviously nothing wrong in theory with policy transfers. I think what this book really shows is the granular detail of how densification happens in different ways in different places, that things often unfold, I think, in quite quite contrary ways. What are the primary drivers of density in Johannesburg, Alison? And how are these drivers basically shaping Joburg's urban form? What are the, some of the pros and cons that come from that? Are they the same in Joburg as they would be in Cape Town as to Etiquini or, or Nelson Mandela Bay? You know, the main things driving um, densification in Joburg would be informal processes. So it would be the inner city densification, quite a lot through increasing occupancy density in high-rise buildings, but also in houses around, backyard. And that, that, compared to other parts of the country, that is much more extensive in Joburg. And you don't get the high-rise densification in Cape Town. You would get something similar in parts of the city of Tswani and parts of Durban. Backyard shacks and that kind of densification that's happening all over the city, but to, to quite a large extent in the former townships and former RDP housing areas, I think that's happening in most cities in, in South Africa. And then, obviously, informal settlements, which you would also see in other places as well. The other kinds of densification that perhaps we don't think about as densification sometimes, which is pretty common across the country, is the shift to townhouse complexes, the more formal densification that's pretty much happening everywhere, including in the existing suburbs all over the show, on the edges of cities. So the edges of cities are becoming more dense than they used to be. Perhaps, again, more extensive in Joburg would be the densification through informal uh, affordable housing. Those more formal processes, the type of thing that the city of Joburg is trying to encourage through inclusionary housing, but perhaps for somewhat higher income groups that would try to do formal densification, but almost copying the informal process. Probably not huge, but it is quite important. In terms of the positives and negatives, I guess a lot of that densification, the informal densification is about giving people access to better located areas. The backyard shacks would be about being in places that already have levels of infrastructure. Though obviously, it's putting pressure on that. In, in a city, there's 
pressure on, on infrastructure. But that's more because from a policy perspective, those processes aren't being properly recognized and supported and considered as part of densification. So the, the policy is really about, well, let's what can we do about formal densification or formal processes of densification rather than actually trying to manage what we're seeing there. And I think that attitude is pretty much around everywhere. What we don't see in Joburg, but you would see somewhere like Etiquini, is the densification of former traditional authority areas on the edges of cities where people are building big houses. It's not pushing it to very high densities, but you are seeing big houses coming in in some of those areas like Adams Mission, parts of the former KwaZulu homeland, and you're seeing that in all sorts of places and cities. Obviously, that's not we're not seeing that in Joburg. What we're seeing in Joburg as well that you would see in, in Cape Town would be the this, this sort of high-rise development in Santon and, and Rosebank, probably not very high population density. So that's very much land market-driven uh, kind of density. And I don't know that we know that much about how that's impacting on all the objectives of compaction policy, like you know people shifting to more to public transport, et cetera. I, I, we don't actually have much evidence about what that's doing and how one might want to see that. You know, Phil, I'm, I'm thinking back to when you and I were working together there in Johannesburg, talking about transit-oriented development and spatial development frameworks in around Santon, Rosebank, Midrand, precursor to 2010 and the World Cup and the rollout of the bus rapid transit systems, giving us a chance to really think not only about rail-based, but also now bus-based transport in support of that. So the idea of transit-oriented development becoming a major theme, I think we even had uh, various symposiums about it with people from around the world who came and talked to us about it, trying to understand in a Johannesburg context. And you've dedicated a third chapter or a third part of the book specifically to TOD or transit-oriented development and reflecting on the corridors of, of freedom initiative. Now, again, I think that was one of the first podcasts that we we, we dealt dealt with. I think Yondela Silamela, uh, one of your successors in terms of executive director there at Johannesburg, talking very eloquently about the strengths and some of the weaknesses in the implementation of that. How does the book look at the the, the success of TOD? Um, and again, just from an anecdote point of view, I mean, I remember it's, it's almost seven years since I moved down to, to Cape Town from Johannesburg and revisiting Santon just over 18 months ago and getting off at the Hau train station, could not believe the extent of change that had taken place in and around that precinct around the station. What Alison talks about, major intensification, upscaling, but probably at a very exclusive and high-end, low population density uh, threshold. What looks impressive and versus what it actually is holding in terms of density is potentially two different things. Is it fair to suggest that the densification is because of or in spite of the plans that are prepared by the city, in this case, Johannesburg? These large-scale projects with long timeframes uh, can't easily be evaluated against sort of clear metrics or, or judged as a success or failure, even over the long term. So the, the nature of the impacts gradually become apparent over the long haul. And I think in the book, we have talked about some of the broad metrics of success, spatial transformation, economic inclusion, social inclusion. But in relation to each of these, um, there really is a complex story. Has it had a meaningful impact? Has it had an impact locally? Has it had an impact at the, the, at the scale of the city? 
there might be quite different answers to those questions. I live just off one of the corridors and I've certainly seen some impact from the program, especially in terms of student accommodation, which is a niche market for some developers attracted to the corridors, the thin improvement in, in public space. I've also looked at some of the figures in terms of, of development applications for new housing in the first few years of the corridors program. They're not unimpressive. In the Louis Buerta corridor, it's 5,000 units in 60 applications. But against the vision proclaimed by the mayor in 2013, those, those outcomes are clearly very limited. One might say disappointing. In, in my view, in fact, the sustained implementation over the cor of the corridors over 10 to 15 years would have made a real difference. We don't know. There are many other uncertainties that come, may come into play apart from political change, which, which has clearly been a disrupting factor. It is difficult to answer that question. Perhaps looking back from 10 years into the future, we might get an easier answer. I, I can say that on the corridors, limited densification at least has happened because of the planning, because of the corridors, and more may have happened if the corridors were sustained at scale. Um, but for the city overall, it's hard to avoid the conclusion, and I think Alison has pointed to that, that much of the densification, the bulk of the densification is happening in spite of the plans of the city, is happening through processes that are not planned for, and that the contribution of a program such as the corridors may be significant in some respects, might turn out to be more significant in the long run, but to date has been extremely modest. You know, one of the interesting things about the corridors in Joburg is that property developers actually have responded to it much more than they'd responded to anything anywhere that planners trying to restructure cities were doing. And that built on quite a lot of dynamics that were already there in the industry. A lot of the property developers trying to build for this new low middle income market in the inner city and trying to convert buildings and so on, and then spilling over into the corridors, sometimes picking up on local dynamics. So I think what the, what the corridors managed to do was to almost capture some of those dynamics that were around. But I do think also what was interesting about them is that they, at certain points in the process, they had some very proactive planners who worked with the developers, who came in and said, come on, turn around your... Uh, your developments and do it more like this. And they were quite responsive to that. So I think they brought them in. And I, I don't think the role of the plan, our planning is totally negligible. They, they managed to bring them into the, the physical vision much more of, of, of the corridors and to work with those sorts of ideas. And when I interviewed those developers, they were actually quite enthusiastic about it. So these things are quite interactive and quite difficult. It's quite difficult to, to separate cause and effect. I don't think that the BRT itself has really helped very much. I think what the BRT has done is to sit on a route that's already quite a significant taxi route. And it's that taxi route that probably both developers and residents wanting to move into those areas are quite responsive to as well, which is not to say that the BRT won't ultimately do something, but it's quite a difficult thing because it's not, the densities aren't that high, 
all the way along it and it's quite difficult to uh, bring that into effect you know outside of those quite particular areas if we think about the political dimension it's been talked about phil uh, and alison have talked about it uh, briefly margot how how important is this the, the political dimension in determining the outcomes in getting to densities which are appropriate and it will support public transport and all these good things and laudable things that are written into the plans is it politics in the political sense with the part you know the card carrying anc versus a da versus eff or is it really around the power and influence of individuals of developers of communities officials ngos and the like really be interested to get your take on the sort of power play within that political space and dimension the politics are absolutely key to understanding what, what goes on within densification. And very often the politics are, are not analyzed in a way that, that they should be. And often, you know, the politics are kind of brushed over and, and density is seen as a very technical kind of approach. It's seen as a, you know, a technical solution to a set of technical problems. But the politics is really key to understanding what goes on. I mean, the corridors of freedom in the first place were a, tech, were a political project. Um, with a group of very powerful officials, saw this as his flagship project, saw this as his his kind of legacy that he would leave on the landscape of, of Johannesburg. It would not have happened without this kind of political input from a strong mayor really pushing this agenda into the city itself. And so that's absolutely imperative. But of course, the difficulty with politics is that the political cycle and the kind of planning cycle are, are out of step with each other. The political cycle changes every five years, if not more, you know, in the case of, of other kinds of things that go on. But they, they're relatively short term. But for a project like the Corridors of Freedom, which looks toward, you know, densification over the over a long time horizon, there's a mismatch. And, and so what we saw in Johannesburg was the fact that uh, when the ANC was voted out and the DA came to power, the corridors of freedom were immediately downgraded um, in importance. So budget was lessened toward them, you know, having any kind of, of official support, any kind of political support. All of those things meant that this long time horizons was basically dispersed as, as a result. You know, that you couldn't, the, the DA wasn't prepared to encourage or support what it was clearly and had been considered and had been put out as an ANC flagship project. I mean, that made sense. The, you know, the, the politics of it was, was very clear. And so, you know, the, what has happened subsequently is that even though there's, you know, the ANCs come back in to, to the mayorship, there still hasn't been the um, re-engaging of support for the corridors of freedom. And so, you know, this is this is one of the problems. But that's that's only one side of the story. Those kind of party politics is one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is is how you embed these ideas into the minds and hearts of people who are involved in, in, in these kinds of projects. And here I mean everybody from officials within the city of Joburg through to the communities that it affected, through to the NGOs, through to you know everybody who is really involved in the property developers and so on and so forth. And here I think this is a kind of politics which the city of Joburg perhaps could have done better. And one of the things that happened is that the participatory process around the corridors um, lagged quite a lot behind the implementation. And the consequence was that there wasn't sufficient buy-in that a lot of the communities and certainly the more middle-class communities really objected to the densification ideas, to the plans that had been put in place. 
And they felt very much that it was a tick box kind of exercise when there was participation because the decisions had already been taken to a large degree. Um, the city of Joburg then did find ways to bring the communities back in, but this is very often because the more middle class communities really forced the issue and said, hey, you know, we, we can't just have compliance led participation. We can't just be here for a tick box. We really need to, to be heard. And as a consequence, there were negotiations around what the final form of densification might look like and what the plans, you know, at the very local level, the very micro scale might look like. That was in conversation with the, with the various communities and various uh, people who lived along the corridor. And so, you know, one has to consider the politics, both the politics with the big P kind of party politics and the effect that that has and the transition. And at the same time, the kind of politics with the small P, the kind of power plays that one has with communities, with with other interested and affected parties and to get them on board. Otherwise, these projects cannot work. They're just going to die sad, sorry deaths, you know, and fizzle out. I do always get a sense. We've had a couple of book reviews over the last couple of months on the podcast is it's almost like what what didn't you get to and obviously as an editorial team that's part of your your duties is to is to you know edit out the noise and at the same time make sure it's it's, it's a comprehensive approach on the theme that you've chosen if you could have done a, a second volume and any thoughts that you would have liked to have looked at that you just didn't get around to this time around there are always more things to be done i mean the one the one issue is around the experience of density, the perceptions of density. I don't think we have a little bit of that in the book. And the experience of different groups of people, women, particular groups of women, rich and poor, et cetera, all of those sorts of things, that whole perceptual side, I don't think we got into very much. And it would be something that would be interesting to explore later on. Um, The longer view of COVID, I suppose, now, also, the, one of the big issues that one would be thinking about is, you know, what, what, what's happening with spatial trends and what is the longer-term view? Though obviously, it's hard to do it from now. People are making all sorts of predictions. We obviously are still very Joburg-focused. I think looking at other towns and what's going on in them would be really interesting. You know, there is that interesting book by Ben and and others looking at secondary cities and their spatial forms and so on. And they talk a bit about that, but one one could take that further. That's looking specifically at densification processes. Then we're also largely looking at residential densification. We're not really looking at economic densification at offices and other economic activities and how those things are playing out. And then I think what I alluded to earlier as well is that higher income densification and what that's actually doing. So what these high-rises in Santon and probably parts of the city centre, who's going into that? Uh, what are the impacts in terms of the expectations of sustainability, use of public transport, et cetera? So I think that there are always piles more things that one could look at. That leads us with the final question, which is really where can listeners find out more about the book? Where can they buy it? If I'm not mistaken, Margot, it's published by Edward Elgar. I'm sure if you look at for the title of Densifying the City, Global Cases in Johannesburg, uh, you'll find it very quickly on Google. Is there a PDF version? That's typically a question that we get asked. I know there are challenges often in terms of the first print run and so forth. But yeah, where can people find out about it? How can they get hold of a copy? Is it available in bookshops locally? 
It's available from the Edward Elgar website. So it's um, if you go into their catalog, you'll be able to find it. At the moment, uh, only the hard copy is, is available, but uh, you will be able to access a PDF hopefully very soon, then there will be an e-copy. I think the best thing to do if people are interested is to do just a Google search for densifying the city and then it will come up quite quite quickly. There's a leaflet that you can that you can have a look at. It gives all the details of it. And in terms of finding out more about the work that you and the team are doing up there at WITS, uh, where, where can people find out, whether it's through Twitter, whether it's through your website, what, how do people find out more about what you're up to up there in Johannesburg? We're very, very um, uh, with it these days. So we have both a Twitter account, which is the NRF Research Chair in Spatial Analysis and City Planning, and a Facebook uh, page also called on Spatial Analysis and City Planning. So the website is www.vits.ac.za slash SACP slash, and that will bring you to an NRF Research Chair in Spatial Analysis and City Planning website. Mother, the, the school website uh, also has other research mm. links that the School of Architecture and Planning, um, as, as we're one of a number of, of research entities in the school. Appreciate it. I think that certainly gives uh, the listeners enough links and feeds to go and find out more. I want to thank the four of you very, very much for your time and for taking the time out this evening to talk about the book. I really do wish you the very best and hopefully we can check in again in the months to come, find out what reaction you've got. I do think that when we spoke to Lee Perniger, the idea was that you were looking at a combined book launch. Is that still going to go ahead, Phil? Is that still one of the plans? We do. Am I correct? I'm Alison Margaret saying it's the 20, Tuesday, the 23rd of this month of March. So to the four of you, all the very best with the book. We look forward to hearing how it goes. Good luck with your, your book launch. Really would like to hear how it goes with both yourself and with Lee's book. And all the very best to you. Thank you for your time this evening. Cheers for now. Thanks, Pete. Okay, take care, Peter. Bye, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please engage with us and let us know your thoughts on this episode. You can do so via the Anchor podcast platform. There's a voice message function available via the app. You can also follow us on Twitter via Talking Transfo and the number one. So Talking Transfo one. Our theme music is kindly made available by Tribal Need. Find out about the music, the street art shows here in Cape Town and Europe via tribalneed.com.